Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ludwig Lin. Today, we will be speaking with Michael Shashari, MDMS, about AKI biomarkers and whether they are ready for clinical use. It's a very controversial and interesting topic, so I'm very happy that we get a chance to speak with him. Uh, he spoke at the 48th Critical Care Congress on this topic, and I'm very happy again that we get a chance to debrief more. Dr. Shashadi comes to us from the Perlman School of Medicine, University of Pennsylvania. Welcome and thank you for being here today, Dr. Shashadi. Thank you very much for having me. I think this is a topic that uh, is critically important to our patients and uh, creates a lot of anxiety for a lot of us. So um, I'm really glad that you can be here to shed some light. Let's start very broadly. Uh, Biomarkers for AKI. Maybe we could start out by talking about who the patients are that are at risk for AKI during their ICU stay, or even just even during their hospital stay before they get transferred to the ICU, and whether one biomarker applies to all types of AKI. And uh, I'd like to even start out by taking a step back and talking briefly about AKI itself so that everybody has a sense. We talk about acute kidney injury there's a spectrum of diseases that can cause renal function to uh, deteriorate. And frankly, from my standpoint, just where I'm coming from this, I work in the intensive care unit. I have also worked on the hospital wards. And patients who develop worsening renal function are complicated and they can be angst-inducing because uh, despite our best efforts, we oftentimes cannot figure out a way to right the ship. And that has spurred a lot of my interest in the field. We don't have great treatments for these patients. We don't have a great way to identify very early the patients who are going to develop acute kidney injury. And I think that that helps to frame the field of AKI biomarkers. Because I think when you think about that field, you have to understand the history of research in AKI. Go back a couple of decades, and and John Kellum is very fond of talking about this. Uh, We used to talk about acute renal failure, and the early studies were focused almost entirely on patients who needed to be dialyzed. That was acute renal failure, and that was it. And we didn't pay attention to anything else in the literature. And he and many other leaders in the field then brought to the forefront this idea that there was quite a range of renal dysfunction that could be quite profound, even with relatively small changes in serum creatinine or drops in urine output that should be paid attention to and are, in fact, associated with uh, profoundly worse outcomes in the patients, ward patients, ICU patients, basically across the whole spectrum. And they recognized early on that Serum creatinine was a delayed marker of changes in renal function, sort of this unsatisfyingly slow marker. Sometimes it would rise quickly, but oftentimes you may have a drop in GFR, and the serum creatinine doesn't start rising until 24 hours or 48 hours later, or depending on how rapidly you're checking it on the wards or in the ICU, you may not notice it. Um, And... uh, 
they propose this idea, I think that part of the reason why why we do have this phenomenon of difficulty counteracting the acute kidney injury that's happening is because we're slow to recognize it. The damage has been done by the time we see the creatinine rise or the urine output fall. And people wondered, um, and in fact, there's plenty of literature on reasons why the creatinine is not a great uh, marker or a sensitive marker of renal function. It can be secreted into the renal tubule, so it's not a perfect measure of GFR by any stretch. Um, They started looking at markers that may be able to tell us something about what's going on in the kidneys early, early on. And I think what you've seen is over the past 10 to 15 years, multiple studies, some of them coming from uh, the animal literature first and then looked at in humans, and then others in which uh, biomarkers were discovered within human populations um, that seem to respond to stresses earlier and then end up being associated with acute kidney injury. And these are what we call AKI biomarkers. They can be proteins circulating around in the blood, They can be markers that are found in the urine. Um, Really, technically, a biomarker could be any sort of measure or response. So, for example, a response to a medication like furosemide. There's something called the furosemide stress test. That, in and of itself, is a biomarker of acute kidney injury or renal function or where it's headed. And so, uh, so that is, I think, what has prompted the interest in the field. We're looking for something that can tell us better what's going on in the kidney at the time that it's actually going on in the kidney. And you and I were chatting before we started recording about how not all AKI patients are the same. One size does not fit all. Um, Do do, do you want to talk more about that now? Should we talk about that once we get started about the various biomarkers? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that uh, we can frame things by saying most uh, practitioners are familiar with the traditional model of dividing acute kidney injury or acute renal failure into uh, three general subgroups, a pre-renal subgroup, an intrinsic renal subgroup, and an obstructive or post-renal subgroup. And it's important to understand that even though there are many causes within each of those subgroups, that is an attempt to approach the acute kidney injury problem in a rational way that is clinically informed that says, Depending on the type of acute kidney injury I have, and there are many different types, I am going to treat that in a different way. And I do think that that ends up feeding in importantly to what we may want to do with biomarkers in terms of reflecting those subtypes. I think it also speaks to the challenges that the field has had in coming up with really good biomarkers that will broadly capture all insults that cause a change in serum creatinine or a decline in urine output. Right. Instead of a very easy plug-in-and-play biomarker, we might need to follow one of those algorithms, have some suspicion first, have a population that has has a higher pretest possible uh, probability, and, and then go with a biomarker. Yeah, I think that uh, as as biomarker development has proceeded, um, I think that people have become more savvy in uh, the ways they can set themselves up for success. Because if you just keep doing study after study that says, well, we tested everybody for the biomarker, and it turns out it doesn't predict serum creatinine very well, on to the next one, 
you're just not going to move anything forward. So instead, people have tried to learn from those experiences and to say, and I will, I will just reference, so we just had a session um, that discussed in detail this currently FDA-approved biomarker, TIMP2 IGF-BP7, and when they designed the studies to try to validate that marker to predict acute kidney injury, they decided to, A, trial it in ICU patients who are at particularly higher risk for acute kidney injury. And in fact, they were looking for stage 2 to 3 acute kidney injury, at least a doubling of creatinine or a, a relatively dramatic decline in urine output. Um, and then uh, they also... Uh, included patients among those ICU patients who had to have some degree of non-renal organ dysfunction focused on respiratory or cardiovascular organ dysfunction. So you see that as uh, a way in which people who have been driving the field um, have been trying to set up the studies for success. But going back to your earlier comment about AKI in the ICU, AKI in the boards, etc., it's great that we can get some of the data that we've, we have obtained in the populations that we've looked at, but then it also means that uh, we can't immediately take those results and try to apply them to those other populations. So, for example, the, the data for using TIMP2 IGF-BP7 in ward patients is essentially not there. It's been tested in... ICU patients, a variety of ICU patients, uh, but we don't know yet what it would look like, how well it might help us in ward patients. Well, you've been talking a lot about these two biomarkers, so let's let, let, let's get uh, the ball rolling and start talking about those in detail. Uh, it sounds like there are two that are now the front runners in terms of the current biomarkers uh, being used in uh, looking at renal function. Um, wh- what are they? What are they actually indicating to us as clinicians? Let's start from there. Yeah, so I think that uh, I think to understand these, understanding the history again is helpful. So um, a lot of the early publications on biomarkers f- focused on biomarkers uh, of kidney damage that came from basic science literature. NGAL is one of them. KIM-1 is one of them. Um, and they are all, th- those and others are um, biomarkers that may be potentially useful. Uh, they're not currently available FDA-approved for testing in patients. Well, um, in 2013, this publication uh, that came out in Critical Care really, I think, through certainly threw me for a loop. I wasn't anticipating it, um, but I, th- I think it was um, it, it was a huge event in the AKI biomarker literature because what happened was um, this group got together and it was funded by industry. Um, and they tested a panel of biomarkers in humans to try to discover, well, which biomarker would be the best. And they included ones that had been tested traditionally, like NGAO or KIM-1, um, but they included a number of others as well that ne- did not necessarily have a lot of animal data behind them. Some justification, but not a lot of animal data. And uh, lo and behold, these two biomarkers that hadn't really been published on before in the renal literature, TIMP2 and IGF-PP7 came out on top and came out fairly convincingly on top when you compared them to things like urine or plasma and gal or KIM-1 or what have you. Um, so uh, that group moved forward, I think, quite rapidly 
in trying to turn that around from, hey, we found a new biomarker that's interesting and that we've tested in a number of different centers and in surgical and medical populations, and then try to obtain validation for the marker so that a commercially available test could be produced. And so a number of studies were done in short succession to try to do that. And I think uh, what I can say, my assessment of the literature on those is that the combination of those two biomarkers has performed well in predicting changes in serum creatinine and urine output within the parameters of how they defined it. And it was fairly strictly defined, meaning they looked for, um, it had to be development of moderate to severe acute kidney injury, that is a doubling of serum creatinine or a significant decline in urine output within 12 hours of measuring the biomarker. So this wasn't, they didn't design the studies so much to look at a test that is going to tell you, uh, will the serum creatinine go up significantly two days from now or three or four days from now? The studies were really focused on this very short time interval. And there are good things about that because you can say, we may be able to find a biomarker that really looks promising there because it's so close. I have a renal, an evident renal insult from creatinine or urine output that, that follows fairly rapidly from this. But there are minuses to it also in terms of the clinical application using this biomarker. I'll talk about a couple of those. One is that um, if you're going to test this and use it clinically, you say, we're going to incorporate this into our hospital and our ICU workflow or something. Then you're going to send this test. You have a certain amount of time that the test takes, probably an hour and a half, two hours, something like this, to get results back. And then you have, at most, 10 hours, but potentially a shorter amount of time, to actually do something about this before that serum creatinine rise or urine output drop is evident even more complicated by the fact that we don't have specific therapies for acute kidney injury. That doesn't mean you can't manage someone appropriately and potentially reduce their risk, but it's not like you say, oh, well, we give them the following medication because that medication prevents kidney damage of some kind that they're going to have. We don't have that. We have management strategies like hemodynamic optimization, Um, or avoidance of nephrotoxins or other things like this. You had a short period of time to try to do those things when you focus on this 12-hour window. I do think that the biomarkers um, are, they certainly are associated with acute kidney injury over a longer period of time, but the test characteristics for the biomarkers become not quite as good. They don't predict that acute kidney injury quite as well uh, over the longer period of time. And in the meantime, a second concern that comes up is that because we're setting the bar kind of high for this acute kidney injury that we're predicting, we are predicting bad AKI that's happening rapidly. There is a chunk of patients who, if I say, okay, well, they had a negative test, so they're not going to have that bad rapid AKI, but they may have slightly slower and still potentially bad AKI that I should be doing something about right now. I don't detect that with my test. And instead, I get a negative or low value for the test. 
what I certainly hope people don't do is they say, okay, well, we don't need to worry about hemodynamic optimization. We don't need to worry about their fluids. We don't need to worry about the nephrotoxins because we're in the clear. There's, you know, only a 3% chance that they'll have AKI. No. There's a 3% chance that they won't develop bad AKI within 12 hours. So it's a limitation that's imposed by how the studies were designed. I certainly understand why they were designed the way they were designed, but I think it also means that we need to then take this test and say, how can we show that it can be more broadly used? Can we use it effectively for that group of patients who may develop slower, somewhat more mild AKI to actually improve their outcomes? So you're saying that the jury's still out in terms of whether you could behave like that? Yes, I think that that is an open question. There are some data, like I said, on uh, looking at AKI over longer time periods, and we think that the uh, predictive qualities of that test are not quite as good. They're still pretty good. But uh, the bar is high for these tests in terms of driving clinical care because if I'm a clinician, what I want is I want the real answer from the test. I want the test to tell me, okay, I'm going into this situation. I think the patient has a 20% chance of acute kidney injury. What do I want to know after the test? I want to have a group of patients who has next to zero risk of acute kidney injury, um, and then I can, you know, I feel free to get my contrast study, which the patient really needs for some reason. Uh, and then on the other side, I have a group of patients who have a 40, 50, 60% risk of acute kidney injury. And now I can use that clinically to balance how I'm going to manage that patient. Um, we don't have that, you know, the evidence is not at that, at that level yet. Let me ask you another question about the behavior of this test. It's a way to predict that somebody is under stress in terms of their kidneys. Can we use it to trend somebody's state of renal stress? Or is it just a, you know, one-time, um, uh, image. Yeah. Um, so the way that the test, again, was trialed was as a one-time test uh, within 24 hours of ICU admission in the select group of patients. I think that everyone has always envisioned that this test and other biomarkers would be ways that we could test responsiveness to therapy. Uh, in the ICU, people trend lactates. And there's some evidence for trending lactates, or at least trends in lactates associated with improved outcomes or worse outcomes. We'd like to be able to do the same thing with this kind of biomarker. And frankly, we'd like to be able to get better than serum creatinine or urine output, which is the, that's the current gold standard, but it's an imperfect gold standard. We'd like to be able to say, when this biomarker changes in a bad way, we think that the kidneys are under stress, and we need to do something about that right now. And then we're going to do that thing, and then we're going to check it again, and we're going to prove to ourselves, yep, we did a good thing, and the kidneys are less stressed, or no, that didn't work. And that's really important in driving the specificity of therapy for your given situation, because as we said, there are so many different kinds of AKI. If I want to use this test to follow what... Uh, how the patient is responding to my therapy, 
I may say, well, I'm going to try to bolus that patient, or I might say, no, I need to diurese that patient, or I need to withhold this medication or whatever else. It's specific to the patient, and if you have a marker that really tells you something about what's going on in the kidneys, that could be helpful. When these markers were discovered, then, not surprisingly, immediately people got very interested in what they're actually doing. They're cell cycle arrest markers. And it is thought that they uh, reflect stress within tubular cells. Therefore, may be a good measure and a measure that uh, could go off even without changes in serum creatinine or GFR that tell us how happy the kidneys are. But there is, again, a long way to go, I think, with that to prove it's the case. Before I start saying, all right, I'm going to use this test, and now I'm going to trend this test in all of my patients, and I'm going to use it for my clinical decision-making in my AKI or at-risk patient. I would like to know that what I'm doing has some evidence behind it that it is going to impact my patient's outcomes. Is it going to reduce their rate of AKI? Is it going to reduce their severity? Do I have less dialysis? Do they have improved renal function in the recovery phase after critical illness or after hospitalization. We are nowhere close to that yet, I would say, from an evidence standpoint. But the good news is that people have already published some clinical trials attempting to use these biomarkers, at least to risk stratify patients. They're small studies. The results are not convincing, in my opinion. But there's some signal that we may be able to implement interventions that could reduce AKI rate. And there is a small signal from those studies suggesting that in patients who get these interventions, sort of a slew of interventions that they tried in these studies, hemodynamic optimization and nephrotoxin sparing, uh, that, that those patients may have declining biomarker levels in response to that intervention very, very early. I do not think that's uh, remotely ready for clinical use. So so right now, we can safely say that these markers are elevated in people at risk for AKI, but we cannot say that these levels, by dropping, are going to decrease their development, subsequent development of AKI, or that they're out of the danger zone. Is that what you're saying, sort of? Yes, I, th- I think that that is the case. I will also highlight... Um, there's the group at Cincinnati Children's has, uh, in my opinion, led the way on another biomarker um, in this regard, NGAL, that has been used in their pediatric patients. And even though it's not an FDA-approved test, uh, they have access to the test clinically. They can use it in their patients. And um, part of what they have done, they've published cases in the literature where they've used the NGAL in their patients to try to make decisions, but then they analyze these cases in great detail where they'll draw you a map of the kidney function and the NGAL levels at certain times. And, you know, this is when we started doing dialysis, if they did dialysis, and then here's when the patient started recovering and what have you. And those things, again, while I wouldn't recommend people start using them like this clinically. They represent this amazing hypothesis-generating lab that they are, you know, they're just creating, I think, this great wealth of data for us to try to learn how these biomarkers could be used 
rationally in a clinical setting, and they're doing it with serial levels. And then they become the experts and already are the experts, really. Uh, and then, and then that can inform studies that we can do to actually show can these things, can a strategy of following this sort of biomarker actually work to improve outcomes? Because you've already collected some observational data from a group of people who are experts and they're trying to figure out how to use that biomarker. Right. I want to be complete and just make sure that we uh, tell everybody who, what, what these two other ones are that we've been talking about. So TINT2 and IGF-BP7, what, what do they stand for? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I just thought please, we should say please it. Please do not ask me that question. Uh, IGF-BP7, I think, is insulin-like growth factor, and then I can't remember the next thing. Okay. This is uh, – I, I consider myself to have um, reached a high level of achievement by being able to say TIM2 IGF-BP7 <laughs> relatively quickly. Right. Yeah. I, I, I did – do some homework. So good. Uh, Thank so, you. So I'm the, glad that you can provide the information <laughs> so, here. So, so the TIMP two is the tissue metalloproteinase inhibitor, inhibitor two. Yes. Just in case anybody out there wanted to actually look them up, I thought we would provide that info. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the interventions that one could do by using these more biomarkers to assay for at-risk patients. What what do you consider as early interventions that could be triggered by these biomarkers. So we talked about in our session today uh, the couple of studies, randomized controlled trials that have been done uh, that utilize these biomarkers essentially as entry criteria into um, randomization towards what's called a KDIGO bundle or KDIGO bundle. Um, It was interpreted differently by the two different groups that ran these trials, but essentially there's a set of recommendations, consensus recommendations, on what should be done in patients who are at significant risk for acute kidney injury. And that includes things like avoidance of nephrotoxins when possible, which means it doesn't mean you discontinue all nephrotoxins. If there's one that is absolutely required for the patient's care, you potentially continue it. But we know that there are some where you say, well, I could do without that or I'm not going to give this patient an NSAID right now, I'll give them some replacement, you would do that if you knew that they were at higher risk for acute kidney injury. That hemodynamic optimization, which I hope we're doing on all of our patients, uh, but still you may do it in a more intensive fashion, one of the groups uh, trialed consulting a nephrologist, and the nephrologist was intimately involved in the management of these cardiac, uh, excuse me, non-cardiac surgery patients from early on and made recommendations about fluid management and reviewed the med lists and tried to discontinue things that were not necessarily helpful. So those are some of the interventions that have been proposed, and I think we're in a period where we're learning whether a comprehensive bundle-type approach to those patients, to certain patient populations, may be beneficial in terms of acute kidney injury. And where it's been trialed thus far, one of them is a cardiac surgery population, the other is a non-cardiac surgery population. These are good populations to start trialing in because uh, there's a lot of protocolized care that's there, and you know, for the most part, when they're going to show up in the ICU. You can prepare for these things. You know when to test the biomarker. And there is potential value to using biomarkers to risk stratify these patients because there are plenty of patients who come out of cardiac surgery who, frankly, 
just don't have much risk for acute kidney injury. And it's possible that if we include all of those people in the trial, we're going to be very underpowered to detect any outcome benefit. And then we conclude, all right, the KDIGO bundle didn't work. I think what people are trying to do is they're trying to use the biomarker to say, this is a high-risk group. If it's going to work in a group, it's going to work in this group. Let's go ahead and trial it in that group, and we can do our trial more efficiently. Do you have any response to people who uh, say, well, everything just costs more money. These, these assays are going to cost more money. Having a specialized bundle with early consultation of yet another group of specialists is going to cost money. We're, we're just creating more business for ourselves. Well, it's interesting that you ask what my response is to those people because I actually consider myself one of those people. <laughs> uh, I am very interested in trying to improve AKI outcomes, AKI diagnostics, but I am also conscious that we're in a situation where, as I already said, we don't have really well-proven therapies. And so I'm not so interested in broadly rolling out an approach clinically that essentially says, well, we have a biomarker that risk stratifies. It has to work because I don't know that. And it does cost a significant amount of money, at least right now, compared to other laboratory tests. Uh, the TIMP2 IGF-BP7 is certainly a good bit more expensive. And I think many labs and institutions are balking appropriately at incorporating it into their lab flow because they say, can you show me the outcomes data? I think this is part of why it is so important to generate that high level of data. So I am both a skeptic and a person who is interested in moving the field forward, and I think that the best way that we as a field can then move that forward is take that group of people, myself included, head on and say, I am going to be as clear-eyed and as objective as possible as I am presenting to you what the data show, what we're actually able to do with this biomarker. And then I'm going to look at the deficiencies, and I'm going to say, how can we get around these? And there are a lot of people who are very creative in the field who are trying to come up with ways to show that these biomarkers can be beneficial. I already referenced the group at Cincinnati Children's, I think if we can uh, get things to a high enough quality state in terms of the evidence that we say, yep, if you use this, you're going to improve outcomes, then it becomes easy because although the test is quote-unquote expensive right now, A, with more use, the cost will probably go down, and B, if you can convincingly prove that a number more people are ending up on dialysis end up on chronic dialysis, die, stay in the hospital longer, what have you, those costs mount very rapidly. So if you have convincing evidence that you're going to minimize those, then I think it's highly likely that the test will become worth it. It is incumbent upon us as a field to actually show that. Right. We know that patients with the comorbidity of AKI have increased mortality uh, require a lot more care, which translates into money. So it behooves all of us to try to ameliorate that. But I think your point is, let's figure out the role of biomarkers in, in doing that. 
Yeah, I think that I think that they hold tremendous promise. I think that, that you know there's no doubt that acute kidney injury of all severities is associated with worse outcomes. I think we also all freely admit that not all of the uh, worsening in outcomes is directly attributable to the kidneys. I mean, we know this as critical care practitioners. You have the patient who's developing acute kidney injury, renal failure goes on dialysis. Oftentimes, that's the vented patient who's hypotensive. There's a lot of stuff that's going on. So I can't necessarily argue that just by improving the acute kidney injury that all of that excess mortality is going to go away. But I think the flip side is that most people would admit, boy, if you could if you could take one of those organ dysfunctions out of that equation, the patient's probably going to do better and it's going to be easier to manage that patient. Do you see any other... Uh arenas in our healthcare system where these renal biomarkers could actually be useful other than the ICU? Yeah, I think ultimately that would be uh, a highly useful setting to consider biomarkers of acute renal risk because so much of acute kidney injury is happening before a patient gets to the intensive care unit. It has had in part to do with the practicalities of running studies. It is a lot, I don't want to call it easier, it is less difficult to do a large multi-center study of acute kidney injury if you can say, all right, well, we're going to limit it to ICUs, the controlled setting, we're monitoring their urine output, everything else like this. You know, you can get it done. But there is uh, plenty of renal injury that happens on the hospital floor and outside the hospital. Outside the hospital, even more complex, uh, but even within hospitalized patients, I think we know we get patients who come into the intensive care unit and on their original, you know, initial bullet list for coming in, they got transferred for acute hypoxemic respiratory failure and acute kidney injury, right? It's already there. So I think we'd love to be able to move some of the early prediction and then potentially interventions to floor patients. But again, from a cost standpoint, you then talk about massive expansion. And I think, again, the bar of evidence becomes reasonably high. You need to start saying, we have not proven that this biomarker is valid to use in floor patients. Should that be tested? Absolutely. And then if we can compile good evidence that yeah, it's going to associate with the development of acute kidney injury in that population. Then we say, all right, what strategies can we implement on the floor that you could actually reasonably do on the floor? You know, because right now what they're trying to do are ICU interventions. Some of those interventions that have been part of these randomized controlled trials could only be done in the intensive care unit. They're just not compatible with floor care. But there are certain other things that may be quite straightforward to do on the floor. So I, I think that that represents a an incredibly important area for the field to move into. I will look forward to that. Uh, we have run out of time, which is unfortunate, because I think we could spend a lot more time talking about all of this. Um, I wanted to really thank you for um, giving us your thoughts about all of it and to have us uh, pay more attention to this area, which, like you said, is very important. Uh, this concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. For the iCritical Care podcast team, I'm Ludwig Lin.
Ludwig H. Lin, M.D., is an intensivist and anesthesiologist at Alta Bates Summit Medical Center in the Bay Area in Northern California and is a consulting professor at Stanford University, where he teaches a seminar on the psychosocial and economic ramifications of critical illness. Dr. Lin did his medical training, anesthesia residency, and critical care medicine fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco. He has served as faculty at both Stanford University as well as the University of California, San Francisco, where he was a professor and the medical director of critical care at San Francisco General Hospital. He has interests in patient-family communication as well as education. Being an SCCM podcast host reminds Dr. Lin of his undergraduate days as a news broadcaster for his college radio station, KZSU. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Contact a customer service representative at 847-827-6888 or visit sccm.org slash membership for more information. The iCritical Care podcast is the copyrighted material of the Society of Critical Care Medicine and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion or endorsement on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, its officers, volunteers, or members, or that of the podcast commercial supporter.